It's been my experience that the more a Christian evangelizes, and by evangelism I mean explicit responsible evangelism, where we ask a person about their worldview, we ask about their belief system, and in turn give a biblical critique, proclaiming what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin while answering objections to the best of our ability. Uh, The more a Christian does that, the more we build up our evangelism muscles and the more we develop, I would say, a godly confidence, a godly boldness. Perhaps the first time we hear a particular question or objection about, say, the historical reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. How many do we have? When were they written? Do they contradict one another? Uh, we'll have to respond, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can answer that question at this point in time. I'll have to do some more reading. I'm going to go talk to my pastor about this, but when I find out, I'll come back to you and we can have a second conversation which not only shows our humility to that person, that's a good thing, but it also builds up our knowledge, right? So the next time someone asks us a question about the biblical manuscripts or about the doctrine of the Trinity or the dual nature of Christ, we will have the answer at our fingertips because we've been here before. It's brilliant. Not knowing all the answers can be a good thing. The Lord can provide providentially use our ignorance to provide us multiple opportunities to talk about the gospel to that same person. I've told this story to some of you before, but a real evangelistic turning point for me occurred when I was still a relatively new Christian. Uh, I was working as a janitor in a medical facility that manufactured ECG electrodes, and one of the engineers there was a man named Mike Bovia. Mike actually looked like Gandalf. Um, he was six foot five. He had long white hair, well past his shoulders, and he had a long, bushy white beard. Uh, Mike was a genius. He hadn't studied at university, but he just knew how to design these incredibly complex electrode machines. And and I talked with Mike almost every day. He he talked to almost no one else, uh, but he liked me. Uh, but we had a very one-dimensional relationship. Uh, We were both film buffs, so we talked film, we critiqued film, and swapped VHS cassettes and DVDs from our personal archives. This was the dark ages before Netflix. And over the course of working there, I evangelized all sorts of people, both on the machine floor and in the head office. People knew I was a Christian, and and I learned how to evangelize, really, uh, during this time period. I learned by doing it. And by making all sorts of mistakes, all sorts of stupid mistakes, and reading books like um, The Case for Christ. But I never evangelized Mike. I was intimidated by his intelligence. He was so smart, I figured his wisdom would destroy my gospel apologetic. And we had a mutual friend named Holly, and she was the only other person he talked to in the plant. And one day, Holly told Mike, John is very religious. He talks to me about my spiritual beliefs and about Jesus all the time. And Mike told her, John's never once talked to me about his religion. And when my friend told me that, I felt deeply convicted. I felt deeply ashamed. I could see 
that I was being controlled by fear. So I heralded the gospel to Mike at long last. And as I did, I steeled myself for a brilliant atheistic rebuttal, the likes of which the world had never seen. But do you know what? Mike offered up the same tired arguments and objections I'd heard 1,000 times before. It was just garden variety cosmic anarchy. And that's when I realized I don't have to be scared of these guys. That lesson changed my Christian life. It changed my evangelism. Now, once I answered Mike's objections to the best of my ability, he didn't become a Christian. He remained a skeptic. Uh, He was glad, for my sake, that I found Christianity a meaningful religion. But some itinerant Jewish rabbi crucified 2,000 years ago in a backwater Roman province had nothing to do with him. Uh, To trust in a crucified Messiah would be foolishness. Jesus isn't God. He didn't perform any miracles. He didn't rise from the grave. He isn't coming to judge the living and the dead. There is no heaven to be gained. There is no hell to be shunned. There is no such thing as sins. There are no moral absolutes, only merely personal, mere personal preference, right, and, and social convention. Mike Bobia was full of worldly wisdom. Look with me at the big picture in your bulletin. The Apostle Paul despises worldly wisdom. Its categories are inimical to all he holds dear, so much so that if its categories were to prevail, the gospel itself could be dismissed as God's folly. To become a Christian would mean to become a fool, and to preach the gospel without manipulative and self-promoting eloquence, but with simple dependence on the truthfulness and power of the message of the crucified Messiah, would be the essence of ignorance. But if, on the other hand, conversely, God's folly is wiser than the world's wisdom, if Christians rejoice that God has chosen the foolish in order to shame the wise and to make it clear that Christ alone is our wisdom from God, and if Paul's priorities and preachings are foundational, then the Corinthians' pursuit of the world's wisdom implicitly contradicts their own Christian profession. In summary, the gospel cuts right through everything to which the Corinthians are committed, their boasting, their arrogance, and their tendency to look for status the way the surrounding culture looks for status. Today's sermon is entitled, The Foolishness of the Cross. And our passage begins in verse 18. But let's go back just one verse to verse 17 and get the flow of the argument. Because what Paul says in the second half of 17 transitions into our text today. You will need your Bibles open on your lap as you do every week at New City. But we're going to follow the text very closely. Uh, Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there we have it. Jesus sent Paul to preach the gospel in a particular manner and for a particular purpose, in a manner without worldly 
rhetoric and clever, sophisticated, impressive status-boosting oratory. And for the purpose to not make Christ's cross useless, emptied of its power. That's one bookend of our passage. Let's just quickly look at the other bookend. Uh, It's point number four in your bulletin, but I'm going to preach it up front. Point number four, the proclaimer of the cross. Paul heralded the message unimpressively. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So you see, it's the same theme. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's very interesting to consider, by the culture's standards, Paul preached unimpressively. You don't don't really think about that when you think of the Apostle Paul. Why? Why did he preach unimpressively? Because in this time period, people who excelled at rhetoric and philosophy were very, very popular. They were the movie stars of their day. It sounds, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. They were the celebrities. They were the rock stars. And they were called sophists. As Nacelli explains, debating others and giving flashy speeches was both a science and an art. It was a polished skill that required sharp wit, deep knowledge, impeccable logic, stylish use of words, and fiery passion whether the topic involved politics, law, religion, or business. Sophists generally traveled from city to city, and they gained followers who would pay them. They would pay them a lot. Uh, And when a sophist entered a city, he would typically display his rhetorical skill for all to hear, and he would gain social standing. He would insert himself somewhere in the rock star pecking order, and he would attract students. And Paul knew that the Corinthians expected the same of him. To behave in exactly the same way when he entered into Corinth. To be their rhetorical movie star that they could boast in. But if Paul mimicked the sophist's flashy and persuasive rhetoric, he would risk impressing people with his style rather than powerfully communicating the gospel message. Now, Paul is certainly not opposed to persuading people. Uh, His entire ministry is all about persuading people, sometimes with winsome intelligence. Remember Acts 17, his address at Mars Hill? I mean, just think of that chapter. That that is not a a lazy, dial-it-in sort of sermon. Uh, But Paul refuses to follow the secular culture. He refuses by relying on on result-driven, manipulative, rhetorical style in order to establish his credibility as an orator. Right? Instead, he focuses on proclaiming the message faithfully while exclusively relying on the Holy Spirit's power, not his rhetoric, to persuade people and transform them 
through the gospel. This is the background to everything we're looking at in the first four chapters of Corinthians. Now we come to verse 18. And the first point listed in our bulletin, the foolishness of the cross, a crucified Messiah, divides the world absolutely. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross, and that's primarily the message's content, and secondarily, the faithful heralding of it. The message of the cross, its content is foolishness. To those who are perishing, perishing eternally. But to us us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And notice how the apostle divides the human race into those who are perishing and into those who are being saved. It's an absolute bifurcation. And friends, it's the only polarity in life that's of ultimate importance. What we're reading here, 500 billion years into eternity, it won't matter too much whether in your three score years and ten you were black or white, if you were single or married, if you were gay or straight, male or female, rich or poor. It will matter whether you were saved or perishing. But what makes verse 18 difficult to understand for modern day readers is the culturally contrasting view of crucifixion and to understand the sheer power of what the apostle paul is saying here we need to think ourselves back into the first century because there really are no modern forms of execution that carry the same cultural overtones of shame of ignominy that crucifixion did in the first century. So if you think of the electric chair, lethal injection, hanging, firing squad, beheading, uh, none of it is comparable to crucifixion. Apart from the sheer torture, the cultural associations conjured up images of evil and corruption and abysmal rejection. There's actually... You can read tracts from the, from the time period. One didn't discuss the cross in polite society. There's actually writings on this. Don't talk about it. And that's because the victim died a dog's death. Hanging naked in agony for days. It was such a horrible way to die, in fact. It was such a shameful way to die that apart from Caesar's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be crucified. Now, it's no big deal today to talk about the cross, talk about crucifixion. Everybody has cross earrings and cross necklaces. We have crosses perched on top of steeples and on, on the side of hospitals. See, the thing is, nobody, nobody's embarrassed by the cross in our culture anymore which makes it hard for us to hear the sheer audacity of verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's so familiar to us. That, that verse has become a refrigerator magnet. It just trills right off our lips without any wincing whatsoever. But how can the gospel of Christ be a form of wisdom 
when the message concerns a crucified Messiah. We still hear this today, don't we? Uh, You evangelicals, you're always wallowing in blood. Always singing about the blood of Jesus. I was appalled by that grotesque mantra that New City sang this morning. Nothing but the blood of Jesus over and over and over and over. What's the matter with you? How utterly foolish. But how does God assess this attitude? We'll come to verse 19 in a second. Just jump ahead to verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Do you know what that verse reminds me of? It reminds me of the beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And that's what God is doing here. He's he's laughing derisively at the foolish, foolish pretensions of perishing men and women. The wise person of verse 20. This is someone who adopts and defends one of the many competing public philosophies of the day. Uh, There were the Epicureans, there were the Stoics, there were the Platonists. All of them were different. All of them were competing with each other. But all of them had one thing in common. They claimed to be able to make sense out of life and death and the universe. So when Paul talks about wisdom here, he's talking about a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. Christians, obviously, we have a worldview as well. Um, It's laid out for us in the pages of Scripture and in the unfolding narrative of salvation history. So we have creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And at its center, at its very center, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul's point here is that no public philosophy, no commonly accepted wisdom can have enduring significance if its center isn't the cross. No worldly wisdom, no philosophy can get to what's foundational in reconciling guilty men and women to their creator God. Let's say for your PhD thesis, you're figuring out the quantum mechanics of black holes. You filled 500 pages with scientific calculus that would make mere mortals blanch in fear Every computation is entirely correct, but your first equation on your first page somehow was 2 plus 2 equals 5. And everything that follows in the subsequent 500 pages of your thesis is based on the truth of that equation. 2 plus 2 equals 5 is your mathematical foundation. Friends, the search for knowledge can go wrong because of a single mistake at the very beginning. 
if the foundation upon which we build our worldview, our interpretation and our understanding of all of life is wrong, if it's wrong, everything else will be wrong too. So I would ask everyone here, where have you placed the cross? Where is the teacher of the law? Referring to a Jewish expert in the law of God. Paul's saying theologians, Bible experts, they fare no better when it comes to understanding the message of the cross. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why is a crucified Messiah a stumbling block to Jews? Because they thought the coming Messiah was a glorious political military figure who would defeat the Romans. Uh, His national kingdom would be established forever. He would restore righteousness to the nation of Israel through a renewed appeal to the law of Moses. And then God's own covenant community would remain the nation of Israel with a handful of circumcised law-abiding Gentiles sprinkled here and there. And the Messiah would usher in this age of prosperity and wealth and political dominion, victory and war, and internal reform. In short, it was going to be political and socioeconomic heaven. The Messiah would usher in all of this, that the Messiah would actually be born in a smelly stable and grow up in the sticks in the northern part of the kingdom where people have funny accents, work as a carpenter, and then make blasphemous claims to divinity and break the Sabbath regulations of the religious leaders and be tried by the religious by the religious authorities who they would certainly be astute enough to recognize the Messiah when he came on the scene and then be condemned to death and beaten and spat upon, his beard pulled out, and then crucified between two criminals, crucified. That the Messiah would be such a person that such things could happen to God's anointed one was preposterous. Even the law of Moses says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Deuteronomy 21, 23. How could the Messiah be cursed? Foolishness. It's foolishness. So, why is the message of Christ crucified foolishness to the Greeks? Because Greeks sought what they perceived to be rational and beautiful. The crucifixion signaled a criminal's defeat, so they rejected a crucified Messiah as absurd and ugly. Even the word that Paul uses for foolishness isn't accidental here. It can be understood to mean mania. It can mean madness. Gentiles wrote off the message of the cross not as eccentric, harmless folly, but as dangerous, almost deranged stupidity. But in fact, in fact, the cross is where God's power and wisdom are preeminently displayed. And God will destroy every system of thought that opposes its message. Look at verse 19. Paul's quoting Isaiah 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. In other words, the message of the cross is nothing other than God's way of doing what he said he would. By the cross, 
God sets aside and shatters all human pretensions and strength and wisdom. As one commentator put it, the gospel is not simply good advice, nor is it good news about God's power. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. The the cross is the place where God has destroyed all human arrogance and pretension. Now, this hasn't yet been seen to be done. Uh, The world still revels in sinful darkness. The world still applauds the wise and the strong. But on the great day of judgment, we will see the wisdom and the power of Jesus Christ as all such guilty sinners and their sinful beliefs are cast into hell forever. Friends, I pray that there is no one here so foolish, so wicked, as to oppose the message of the cross of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. But to those of us who are being saved, those of us who have been called by God, the message of the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. This is now the other side of the great polarity Paul sets for us in verse 18. This, this absolute division he sets up of all humanity that's been established at the cross. Look at verse 24. But to those whom God has called. And the word called in Paul's use means that God has reached out and saved them. God's call, as Paul refers to it, is effective. It's always effective. Those whom God calls are inevitably converted. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. As Don Carson explains, it's not as if the gospel of Jesus Christ is just a philosophical just a philosophical system, a supremely wise system that stands over against the folly of other philosophical systems. It's far more where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with human need. God himself has taken action. We are impotent when it comes to dealing with our sin and being reconciled to God. But where we are impotent, God is powerful. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. And this is much more radical than saying that God has more wisdom than human beings. That he has more strength than human beings as if we're dealing with mere degrees of wisdom and power here. No, we're dealing with absolute polar opposites. Human wisdom and strength are from God's perspective, rebellious folly and moral weakness. And the moment when God most dramatically discloses his own wisdom and strength, the moment when his own dear son is crucified, although it's laughed out of court by the wisdom of this rebellious world, by the pathetic strength of the self-deceived, it is 
Nevertheless, the moment of divine wisdom and divine power is the greatest act of wisdom and power this universe has ever seen. And don't forget, don't lose the forest for the trees that are going verse by verse. It's, and the Corinthians are hung up on rhetoric. They're hung up on, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos because of their, their various abilities in public speaking. That's why Paul's emphasizing here, we preach Christ and him crucified, the power and the wisdom of God. Look at your big picture yet again. Paul despises worldly wisdom. Its categories are inimical to all he holds dear, so much so that if its categories were to prevail, the gospel could be dismissed as God's folly. To become a Christian would mean to become a fool and to preach the gospel without manipulative and self-promoting eloquence, but with simple dependence on the truthfulness and power of the message of the crucified Messiah would be the essence of ignorance. This is why Paul's talking about this. Bear in mind, it's so difficult as we're, as we're taking this text chop by chop by chop. It's one big theme, but this is now part two of that bigger theme, dividing over church teachers. And starting in verse 26, Paul further demonstrates the contrast between divine and human wisdom in terms of the church's human history and social status. And this is going to be our concluding point today. Point number three, the outreach of the cross, its followers are low-status people. Just let that hang there for a moment. Feel free to squirm in your seat a bit. Followers of the cross are low-status people. Paul's been looking especially at the people who reject the message of the cross, and he said some pretty strong things. Now he turns to focus especially on those who accept the message of the cross, and he finds that who they are supports his main point. By and large, the people in Corinth who have become Christians are not the wise or the glamorous or the gifted or the saintly. By and large, beloved, with some wonderful exceptions, we're nobodies. That's what the Bible says. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of your station in life when you were converted. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. The comedian Groucho Marx once famously quipped, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. And what he's saying with self-deprecating good humor is a really good club should be discriminating. A club like beautifulpeople.com. Have you heard about this website? You can look it up, beautifulpeople.com. But uh, it's, it's an online dating service. But you singles, don't get your hopes up just yet. It's not open to just anyone, alas. Applicants to the website are voted in or out by existing members of the opposite sex over a 48-hour period. You have to submit your photo. And if applicants secure a majority of positive votes, then they're accepted, and about 20% make it. Which is why their tagline, blazoned across their homepage, reads, online, online dating for beautiful people only. 
<laughs> but, and this is so tragic, but in June of 2011, beautifulpeople.com was attacked by a virus uh, nicknamed Shrek by the media, which allowed users to join without going through the mandatory 48-hour voting process. So now there were ugly people with their profiles up on beautifulpeople.com. The horror! 30 thousand people had to be removed <laughs> and, and a helpline this is true a helpline was set up by beautifulpeople.com for the users who were removed those poor deluded people who falsely believed that they were beautiful i mean who thought they might have a chance thank god that that philosophy that principle spiritually speaking is not the principle on which the church of jesus christ operates Thank God for that. God does not say, um, if, you're, if you're this holy, then I'll let you into my salvation club. If you're this inherently lovable, I'll elect you to salvation. If you're this rich, if you're this wise, if you're this influential, it's the exact opposite. The church is a low-class operation with a few sophisticated exceptions to prove that the wise and the influential and those of noble birth are not necessarily excluded. God's electing grace can reach anyone. Besides, God is infinite. He's infinite in power and wisdom. So when he looks upon us, he doesn't make distinctions based on our natural abilities or our health or our wisdom or how cute we are. Good grief. It would be, it would be so foolish for God to look on our wealth and our intellect and our power. Those are all gifts that he's bestowed upon us in the first place. We're to be stewarding those things. What would be the point? So I ask New City, where are the brilliant intellects among us? How many of us are wise by human standards? That's not to say there are no brilliant minds in the church, men like Augustine, Calvin, Edwards. Uh, the Lord does bless his church with intellects of that exceptional caliber, but they're the exception. Where are the politically influential? Where are the rich? By and large, the church is composed of the poor and the obscure. Which is why, incidentally, we don't find mandates in the New Testament for Christians to redeem the culture. We're not part of that power base. We're not, by and large, the influencers in our culture. In the first century, the church was composed of a lot of slaves. In fact, it's often, it's often with a kind of intellectual disdain, with class snobbery, that people look down on the church. So why is it then we constantly parade Christian athletes, Christian, Christian media personalities, and Christian pop singers, Christian politicians, whatever it might be? Um, why should we think that their opinions or their experiences of grace are of any more significance than those of any other believer? When we tell outsiders about people in our church, New City, do we instantly think of the despised and the lowly who have become Christians? 
Or do we love to impress people with the importance of the men and women who have become Christians? Here, visitor, let me introduce you to this doctor who's a member. Here's this lawyer. Here's the MPP. Here's our resident celebrity artist. As one commentator tells it, modern Western evangelical Modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infected with the virus of triumphalism. And the resulting illness destroys humility, it minimizes grace, and offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom of our day. I would say to that, amen. God save us. We're infected with this virus of triumphalism. A local church is one of those places that collects people with problems. It's a badge of honor, really. Uh, We are supposed to be the most non-judgmental group of people on the face of the earth. We've all been saved from hell by God's grace. The disenfranchised should feel right at home at New City Baptist Church. James speaks of this in his epistle, doesn't he? If a rich person and a, pers- and a poor person enter the church, how are they to be treated? Exactly the same. Verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This doesn't mean that he makes them feel ashamed, but that he shames them. He disgraces them. God chose, verse 28, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Those who are perishing, those who are wise in the eyes of the world, they think... How can the gospel of Jesus Christ be a form of wisdom when the message concerns a crucified Messiah and its recipients, if we're to call a spade a spade, are far from wise or influential? These people are weak. They're lowly. They're foolish. What can they possibly have to offer me, I who am so strong and wise? Such a person is a fool. And the Bible tells us that that person is going to be put to shame if they don't repent. The wise will be shamed by the foolish. The strong will be shamed by the weak. I did a year-long pastoral internship with Pastor Ken Davis, the man who was preaching here a few weeks ago at Thistletown Baptist in Rexdale in 2007. And in Ken's office was a picture of a man, a Christian. His name was Noah. Ken met Noah on a mission trip to Malawi. And this brother in Christ, uh, he's very poor. The whole village he's from is poor. And uh, I would look at this picture every time I came into Ken's office. I was just captivated by it. I, I can honestly say that Noah is the most pitiable looking human being. I've ever seen in my life. Leprosy had ravaged his entire body. His 
he had flippers for hands, no fingers, and he had meat clubs for feet. You can see this in the picture. His eyes were totally blind, and they bulged grotesquely from their sockets. I'm not sure if that was due to leprosy or some other terrible disease, but they looked like yellow golf balls. Uh, also, his teeth were just splayed out in every direction. And in this picture, he's just sitting in the dirt next to a, a house. Uh, I've, I've sometimes wept looking at this picture. However, Noah has been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And one day, the sheep and the goats will be standing before the judgment throne of Jesus. And Noah, his body whole, will be standing with the sheep, Christ's own dear lambs. And he'll be in the same group as the Apostle Paul and the disciples and the great saints of the ages. One day, Noah will rule over all creation along with his Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is co-heirs with Christ and was crucified with him and raised with him. And all things will be his as he comes into his eternal reward. And all the people who ever mocked Noah or despised him or turned away from him in disgust, all who had the sinful arrogance to believe that his faith was merely a psychological pillow because things were so bad for him in this life. All those who did not feed or clothe him or tend to his illness because they did not want to become contaminated. If those people do not repent, then on the last day, Jesus will say to them, Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do for me. On the last day, God will shame the strong and the wise. They will be cast into outer darkness. And he will exalt the weak and the lowly and the despised and the foolish and of no account. Verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you catch that? There, there are two reasons that Paul gives here why there is no room for boasting in Christian salvation. Number one, it's God who does the choosing in the first place. Therefore, we cannot boast. Look at, look at your text. Verse 24. But to those whom God has called. Verse 27. God chose the foolish things. God chose the weak things. Verse 28. He chose the lowly things. Verse 30. It is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. 
So if it's God who takes that first crucial step, if it's God who changes our hearts from stone to flesh, if he has chosen us in the beloved, then all grounds for boasting fall away. We are saved by grace, grace, grace. Don't start making the mistake, Christian, once you've been saved for a few years, to start patting yourself on the back. God himself says that you are weak. God says you're lowly. God says that you are despised, that you are foolish and of no account. That's directly coming from your creator. (laughs) Amen? We don't want to think of ourselves that way, though. Like, I think of myself as being at the very center of the universe. The second reason we don't have grounds for boasting is found in verse 30. Our wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption, none of that comes from ourselves. These qualities are all imparted to us by Christ. Loved ones, hear this. I'm going to close with this. This is so important. Against the obsession with status-seeking and success in our culture, Paul redefines, he totally redefines wisdom. He redefines wisdom as receiving the gifts of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption freely bestowed through Christ. Do you see? This is how believers benefit from a crucified Messiah. We are righteous because Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to us. There has been a great exchange at the cross. Our sin for Christ's righteousness, his own right standing before the Heavenly Father. The principle of holiness has been imparted to us through Christ. His work on the cross has secured for us the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to live holy lives and fight temptation. We have been redeemed. We've been liberated from a state of bondage to sin and liberated to a new situation of service, a life where Jesus Christ is our master. None of these things were accomplished by ourselves. Jesus did it all for us. As we sing, Jesus paid it all. He did all of it. By God's enabling grace, we just, we hold out our empty hand and we receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as inadequate as my explanation of this portion of your word has been, Nevertheless, you would illuminate our hearts by your spirit and you would speak to us. Lord, we grieve at the Corinthian state today of the Church of North America. This this terrible virus of triumphalism, which destroys humility, it minimizes the grace of the gospel, and it offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom of our day. Lord, I would be the first to confess the gospel has not had the impact on my life that it should. I see my own sinful Corinthian heart as I seek to pastor this church, as I seek to preach your word to this church. I've often taken my eyes off Christ and him crucified. 
who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I, I've, I've too often wondered, too often hoped, uh, that people are thinking, what a wonderful preacher, and not, what a wonderful Savior. But what did Paul say? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us as a church culture. As we continue through this epistle, we pray that you would uh, bring us back to these apostolic standards recognizing that a cross-centered ministry is characterized by the Spirit's power and is vindicated in transformed lives. That is, that's what we need, unction, the anointing of the Spirit, the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Where that power is present, Lord, people can, they, we can't help but know it. And the faith of those who turn to Christ is safely anchored in God himself. But where that power is absent, Nothing can repair the loss, and the faith of new converts is likely to be attached to the wrong things, as we'll see in chapter 3. Father, may the preaching at New City always be biblical, constantly emphasizing the gospel, constantly elevating Christ crucified. May that always be our standard. We earnestly pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.